Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. We tend not to think enough about professional burnout in physicians. It does happen, and it happens in other professions as well. Dr. Penelope Ziegler is the medical director of the Professional Resources Network in Florida, and their concerns are to better understand the how, the why, the prevention, and the treatment of burnout. Dr. Ziegler, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It's critical that we take a look at this entire topic, but let's begin with a little bit of an overview. If there is a known number, approximately what percentage of U.S. physicians are thought to be burned out? And I guess attached to that question, in all fairness, is there must be degrees of being burned out as well. Yes, that's certainly true. So that if you start looking at this in a more systematic way, you can begin to see early warning signs and then some moderate problems. And we use the term burnout to actually talk about a state of overwhelming physical and emotional exhaustion. When a physician gets to the point of experiencing that level of distress and discontent, if you will, with the professional experience they're in, and we start to call it burnout, there have been a number of big studies recently on different groups of physicians. If you average them all out, we would say that probably somewhere around 45 to 46 percent of U.S. physicians would fit into that category that we call burnout which is not really a diagnosable psychiatric disorder. It's simply a state of vital exhaustion. Burnout is not equal to impairment, is what you're saying. Oh, that's correct. And our program primarily works with impaired physicians, but we have learned through a variety of studies that burnout can be a prelude to a state of impairment that does involve a diagnosable psychiatric disorder a physical decompensation of some sort, stress-related illness that would qualify somebody to be a participant in a program for impaired professionals, which is what the Professionals Resource Network really is. We've been learning more and more about this because we think it may be a way for us to identify and perhaps prevent professional impairment in physicians who are headed in that direction. Is there a difference between younger, new Newer physicians and older physicians in the rate or incidence of, and we'll just use the word burnout. Yes. We can suggest impairment somewhere in, in there. I know there's a line. Well, it's interesting because older physicians who've been in practice for a longer period of time are more likely to experience burnout related to certain changes that have happened in the way organized medicine and healthcare delivery are operating these days. Younger physicians are experiencing a different type of stress. They didn't have to adapt to a massive change in the way the system operates, but they are perhaps much more likely than the older physicians to be burdened with huge amounts of educational debt for their student loans and other startup costs in terms of entering practice. Often they have not gone into practice or gone into the profession with the same expectations that the older physicians had. 
but still all these recent changes and the difficulties that physicians are having negotiating the system are contributing to their problems as well. Are we therefore losing the number of people who go into medicine? Do you happen to know that? We're not losing the number of people who apply to medical schools. Some people have speculated that we may not be getting the same quality of applicants that we might have gotten 10 or 15 years ago, but there's no data to support that speculation. We are seeing more and more physicians coming into practice in the U.S. from overseas medical schools, either because they're from those other countries or because they went out of the country in order to train. That one other issue that perhaps plays a role in all of this, because there was a point in time when medical schools were very strictly limited in the number of trainees they could accept and the size of their classes, because there was a prediction that there was going to be adequate supplies of physicians or perhaps a glut of physicians, especially in certain specialties. That turned out not to be an accurate prediction, and now we're looking at physician shortages, especially in underserved areas. So more and more people are wanting to come in, but the schools are not set up to accommodate them. And then there's the whole question that comes up that may not be in any way related to burnout, but at least it's a question that should be put on the table is the whole issue of for-profit medical education. Which I'd like to get to in a minute because maybe okay. indirectly there is some connection to the to the burnout. But the question that came to mind when you were talking about the foreign medical graduates, and some of them clinically are excellent. We, we shouldn't suggest in any manner or form that they're not equally as, as skilled, but they come from a different background. They come from a different culture. Do they tend to burn out less? Do we have any data? To the best of my knowledge, no one has ever done a study on that particular topic. I don't know that we really know the answer to that question. Are they less likely to experience these kinds of exhaustion and burnout? But what we have noticed is that they're more likely than Americans who trained in America and grew up in an American culture to run into difficulties in terms of their relationships with others because their cultural expectations are different. So they may come from a culture, for example, where physicians were treated differently than perhaps they are in the U.S., so they may be more likely to get into difficulty with what is sometimes referred to as disruptive behavior. Interesting. Do we see a trend in the type of specialty that seems to be more likely to end up in a burnout or even with a psychiatric problem, the pediatrician versus the cardiologist? Is there any sense of that? Yes. Studies have shown that the specialty areas that are most likely to have practitioners that endorse the symptoms of burnout are emergency medicine, critical care, and family practice. At the other end of the scale, at the lowest end, are specialties like pediatrics, ophthalmology, psychiatry, and pathology. And in these groups, the ones that tend to be more towards the burnout, to use the term again, mm -hmm. do we see a disproportionate rise when we look at the larger society in terms of alcohol use, drug use, suicide rates, those sorts of things? Well, that's one of the interesting issues that this whole study of burnout has suggested because if burnout comes from work-related stress, which it often does, work-related stress is associated with higher levels 
of depression, uh, drug and alcohol, uh, misuse, self-medication, and ultimately impairment. And we think it is, but the studies are not quite as definitive there. Then we should be able to prevent some of those impairment-related issues by intervening earlier in terms of burnout and preventing a burnout. We can recognize that. We can reverse it and treat it more effectively and more quickly, and therefore we could decrease the risks of depression, suicide, substance abuse, medical errors, and things like that. How likely are doctors to put their hand up and say, okay, (laughs) I need help? That is part of the problem. These studies that show the high rate of burnout are done anonymously. The privacy of the person responding to the survey is more or less guaranteed because they don't put their name down. It's done online. People have been shown to be much more likely to be honest with the computer than they are with an interviewer who they're sitting across from face to face. But on the other hand, if we can kind of normalize this idea that, hey, this is an occupational hazard in medicine and doctors are vulnerable to this and you're not the only one who's experiencing these kinds of things, it may be that we can make it more likely that people would actually ask for help with this rather than just answer anonymous confidential survey, but not actually raise their hand and say, I could really use some help in dealing with this. We think that probably the best way to approach this initially anyway, is to educate physicians about these risks, normalize the experience that people are going through, and then let them know that, first of all, they are not alone and they're not uniquely vulnerable and somehow weak. That's one of the problems we've always had in trying to help physicians who have serious psychiatric and substance use issues, we have never been able to convince them that they are part of a much larger group of people who have the same vulnerabilities as the average population and can benefit from the same types of treatment that are available to ordinary citizens because doctors are trained to look at themselves as somehow expected to be above that, not supposed to be vulnerable to the same medical and psychiatric issues that the general population. A lot of the hesitancy beyond the shame is the fear that somehow it's going to destroy or take away their profession. Yes, I think that's a big piece of it. I think people are afraid to ask for help because they don't want to have disciplinary action taken against them because they're violating some kind of rule or expectation. It's also the case that many people have so effectively trained themselves to ignore their own needs as part of their medical training that they don't actually notice their vulnerabilities or the symptoms that they're experiencing until it's pretty far advanced. One of the interesting things is that you learn how to do that early in your training as a physician. You learn how to put your needs on the back burner, to ignore your body and what it's asking you for, for example, if you become ill with some sort of an acute illness like a cold or the flu or a GI distress or something like that that the average population would call in sick for, doctors don't do that. 
because they're not supposed to, because they've been trained from the very beginning that you're not supposed to get sick. And if you do catch a cold, you go to work anyway, because if you didn't, somehow you would be thought of as being less effective. seems also that a lot of the fear may be, if they should get into trouble, is that the punishment, how should I say this, the punishment, if there is a disciplinary action, is not for being sick. It's for really not coming to the table sooner and asking for help. And that's what we're saying. Ask for help. Don't hide it. The psychology of the physician being such that they're going to avoid it. Do you have a profile? Do you have some sort of impairment profile? There are such such questionnaires, such profiles. Unfortunately, most doctors don't look at them because they don't have time and they don't think it applies to them. The trouble is if we wait until a physician is in mid-career or late career to start promoting this kind of self-awareness, we're waiting way too late. We need to start very, very early with medical students or even pre-medical students, getting them to recognize that doctors are human beings, that they have needs, that they have requirements. They have to take care of themselves before they're going to be able to take care of their patients. If anything, American medical education has promoted the opposite perspective. If you know anything about the history of medical education, there was a big expose back at the beginning of the 20th century, exposing for-profit medical education as being the wrong way to go, an ineffective approach to training good doctors. Physicians were not getting adequate training at the time. There were many for-profit institutions in the U.S. that trained physicians, and they all more or less went away because this report that was done, the so-called Flexner report, said this is not the right way to go, and instead medical schools became academic, not-for-profit institutions that were focused on education and research and not on making money for the owners of the schools. That has been the model for medical education ever since that time. Now what we've seen is a kind of a rebirth of for-profit medical education in these offshore schools where American students go to these for-profit institutions. Many of them are located, for example, in the Caribbean. These schools train American students who did not get accepted the first time around at U.S. medical schools, but they have very much substandard educational offerings, and most of the students learn what they need to learn about medicine, not during their preclinical scientific years, as they do in the U.S., but in their clinical rotations, which are all done in the U.S. at various hospitals and systems, the schools sell these rotations, these clinical rotations, to the schools, which are desperate for money. And so the schools are displacing, the American medical schools are displacing American students for these folks who are at offshore institutions where they can get decent medical training, but it's displacing students from America. Schools, which is kind of wrong-headed if organized medicine is, is to have a say about this. And also, many of these students really have not had an adequate background to do the clinical rotations that their school has paid for them to do at American hospitals and training institutions. Ultimately, they have a very high dropout rate. They have a very high failure rate for students trying to take the qualification exams towards the end of their education. 
in and they're not meeting the need for additional well-trained physicians to serve in American communities. Plus, the students are burdened with even larger educational debt because these schools are extremely expensive. The students are completely unable to pay back the debt that they've incurred by going into those specialties where the biggest need is. Primary care specialties and psychiatry is where we have the biggest needs right now, but a person working in one of those specialties doesn't make enough money to pay back their student loans. Back to the burdens. That's right. Are there differences between the doctors that work in the VA system or completely part of a hospital, a hospitalist? Because I look at those folks and I'm there's an element of jealousy. I'm thinking, this is great. They don't have to worry about billing. They don't have to worry about coding. They don't have to worry about fixing the light in the hallway because it's not their office. They go in at nine to leave at four. They have a set vacation. They have people who cover for them. It seems like it would be an easier world. Do you see a difference in, shall we say, burnout between the folks like me in private practice and the people at the VA systems? Well, actually, it's interesting because the people in private practice often do have that sense of well, gee, I would like it if I could have that kind of thing. But, of course, the big difference is that you can't make any money at that. In the salaried-type positions, you make enough money to pay your debts and live day-to-day, but you certainly are not going to be able to join the upper-middle-class country club set that most doctors had in mind when they went into medicine in the first place. Now, we often say that no one goes into medicine because they want to get rich. Well, right. Nobody is expecting to become an entrepreneurial billionaire in medicine. But I think most people who went into medicine more than a few years ago, most of those people were expecting to have a comfortable living and provide for their family in ways that were not overly burdensome and get a nice house and send their kids to good schools and that sort of thing. That is not the case with many of these employed physicians. They're much more in the middle class and with all the debt they have, that is much more stressful in some ways. Private practice practitioner may be in a position right now to make more money than the person who is employed. But that isn't going to last because nobody's going to be able, at the way things are going, nobody's going to be able to maintain their private practice with all of the government red tape and regulations and all of the requirements and such. So we're really at a crossroads here in terms of what are private practitioners supposed to do. It brings us full circle. Right. Because if someone is exhausted, beginning to feel worthless, depersonalized, dissatisfied, part, I guess, of step one of avoiding burnout is to have a good, hard look at yourself, where you're going in life, what goals do you want, and adapting accordingly. That's correct. And of course, most people, if they try to do that sort of thing in the privacy of their own office or their own bedroom without the benefit of any feedback from somebody else, it doesn't take very long with that sort of soul searching to reach a point of feeling pretty hopeless. What we really need is for doctors to start talking to each other about these issues and realizing that, hey, this is not a viable system. We need to make some changes here. If 
we don't all work together, we're all going to hang separately, which is what we are seeing a lot of in this day and age. People getting into disastrous situations in part because of their isolation, their emotional isolation. They get up, they get dressed, they go to work, they look good, they perform their duties, and they come home in despair. Very true, very massive, very complex, and very, very, very important. No one talks to anyone else about it because they think they're the only one who's experiencing this, that if they let anyone know about it, they would be looked down on. It's another shame thing, just like this, yes. the psychiatric stigmas. But we're going to start talking an inch at a time, an inch at a time. Dr. Ziegler is the medical director of the Professional Resources Network in Florida. Thank you, Dr. Ziegler, for taking this through a topic that perhaps some people will find uncomfortable, but in that discomfort is a truth that I think they will definitely need. Thank you so much. Well, you're certainly welcome. Thanks for asking me to participate.